On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Peter Gabriel's So. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we reach perhaps the pinnacle of the Peter Gabriel catalog with So. Gentlemen, welcome to the Palaver here this evening. It is uh, Palaver for three. Our, our good friend Tom Corcoran is, is off on an epic adventure, which I cannot wait until we're in a position where we can talk about it. But sadly, he is unable to join us here. I don't think he actually sent us any of his thoughts either, which I'm curious because, I, ah. you know, obviously we love Tom because he's a, a fantastic person. And and as long as we've known Tom, and as many palavers as we've done, I I still don't I I lack the ability to predict what he's going to like and what he's not going to like because he mm. made some sort of semi disparaging comment about this album um, yeah. either yesterday or today when he informed us that he wouldn't be able to join, and I'm like, what's there not to like about so? I don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I think the one hallmark um, thing to to that tips you off to Tom not liking an album is when everyone else likes it. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is then true. But yeah, I mean, we'll call it the Kaylee rule. <laughs> <laughs> we can indeed call it the Kaylee rule, but I mean, you know, I, we, we've talked about this before with Peter Gabriel, right? The fact that he is so popular in some ways, almost defies logic. Because with a couple of exceptions on this record, you know, much much like we were talking about in Genesis by the Numbers, there's not nearly as much pop as you would think based on the number of albums sold, but, but Peter Gabriel, I think, strays further away for, or stays further away from that than, than even Genesis did. And, I mean, some of the stuff on this record, quite frankly, you know, some might consider weird, boring, offbeat, whatever the case may be. But I, but still, I mean, the album sold a bazillion copies, and it's, I, I think it's brilliant. Um, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's, like, there's something special about this record, I think, Peter Gabriel is, it, is evolving through all of his experimentation and all of the places that he's gone on the previous four albums. He's literally at the peak of his, of his performing. I think his vocals, his songwriting, he's also seemingly released his, his control over, over the art. Right. He's, you know, like, like I think um, Daniel Lanois uh, fingerprints are all over this. Tony Levin is 
more than just the bass player you know he has he's completely a part of of some of these tunes and he's just he's sort of releasing all of the musicians just to be their brilliant self and it all just comes together so magically and and, and he's not, a quick word for david rhodes while you're at it there you go yeah yeah and, and and he's not peter peter is not putting artificial constraints on the musicians anymore either so we have mm-hmm. You know the the much heralded return of the cymbals to the to the drum kit here. There's no detriment from that. In fact, it's a it's a beautiful thing. It's fantastic the way it, it actually happens. And I'm glad you mentioned Tony Levin, Paul, because I mean, as long as I've listened to this album, and you know, as I was listening to it, sort of you know a little bit more closely for this episode, and certainly when you put on, you know, put on headphones, I. I can't not listen to Tony Levin. Mm. It's all oh. about Tony Levin. I mean, it's just one big fuzzy sludge <laughs> oh. fest after another. With it that is. Guy. It it's like a giant bowl of a like creamy buttery sauce of something. Like something, it just, yeah. It's and oh. and in, even on you know and and well, we'll get into this obviously, but you know. It was interesting when you talk about, um, and I'm sure you guys saw this on the wikis, Gabriel always wanted In Your Eyes to close the album, but due to the peculiarities of vinyl, it had to be put at the front end of side two as opposed to on the back end. So eventually, you know, and, and if you look at the, the, the digital version on Spotify, they have put In Your Eyes at the back end. Yes. The rest of the track order is the same, but they put In Your Eyes at the back end. And and so In Your Eyes was put sort of, quote unquote, out of order on the original vinyl because of the need for the the bass track. And so when you, you know, okay, great. I can't wait to hear this. And it's not in any way, shape or form his, Tony's most electric performance but it is still just so big and meaty mm. and yeah. luscious that you're just like, okay, I don't care. It's all good. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to just go on record right now as saying I prefer the original track order to, to whatever the, the, the one it is now. I, 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 I do as well. I, I think it's, I think mm-hmm. it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's just, it was so like, I remember listening to this in the car you know, a few weeks ago, getting ready for this. And I, you know, and I'm just like, you know, driving along and just like happy as shit listening to so. And like, I'm, I'm like three quarters of the way through the album. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, why haven't we heard in your eyes yet? What Mm -hmm. did Mm -hmm. they, what's going Mm -hmm. on? And then it came in at the end. I was like, this isn't right. Um, Yeah. I think it would work in a live setting. I think it's a a very uh, communal type love song. And it, it, I imagine if, if Gabriel was thinking about putting on a concert, it would beautifully end within your eyes. But uh, I, I like what you said, Joe. The, 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 the sequencing is much better within your eyes opening the second side. And, 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 and just to be consistent with our other palavers, we're not big fans of Gabriel sequencing tracks. He, he's a brilliant artist, but when he puts songs in a certain order, it's not necessarily what we would have. Well, and, and, Which is maybe why we like the original order so so much, right, Ken? Well, and and so when you think about it, right, you know, there there's dynamics at play, and so when you look at, you know, 
don't give up into that voice again, into Mercy Street. That's kind of a big sort of trough. And, and yeah. not trough in the sense that they're not good songs, but it's it's all kind of sparse and quiet and slow and moody and whatever. And, you know, not that not that In Your Eyes is a get-up-and-dance song, but it does have, you know, that sort of different feel to it that sort of breaks yeah. up a certain amount of monotony. But, you know, what, whatever. We're, we're not going to, you know... Squ- yeah, well, I'll much. tell you this. It, it will run you like an extra $30 on vinyl to get the old pressing with the old order unless if you can you find a good to, copy. Unless you happen to have several <laughs> copies in your library. <laughs> <laughs> would, would you like me to send you one, Paul? I, I think I, I have, have a couple to, extra. I have to tell you, I was shocked when I when I was digging through. I I do not have any physical medium of of so really? none. And I've, I'm thinking to myself, how did I? And I must have taped it off of the uh, the the vinyl that I heard it on first. Um. I mean, I'll just share. I think I mentioned this uh, in a previous palaver that my sister was dating somebody and he had left so for her to listen to. And she mentioned to me, Paul, I think you would really like this this record. You should listen to it. And I said, I was like, looked at the title, Peter Gabriel, and I was like, the shock, the monkey guy? (laughs) Like (laughs) that. And, And so... Like that night, I took it up into my room and I put it on the turntable and I laid in bed and I had these I had these big puffy blue headphones that that I wore. And I, re- I remember listening to certain things in very, very few things. Um, and those those same blue puffy headphones was was what I used when I bore witness to the musical genius of Ken Gregory back in those days mm. when he would give me those those cassettes. And I lay in bed and and I literally can just picture every time I hear the opening hi-hats to Red Rain, I can picture just laying in my bed, looking at my Van Halen poster on the wall and just like being like, ooh, wow. And and um, it was it was a magical, wonderful moment. And I, I must have dubbed a cassette off of that that LP that that next day. And just been carrying that around with me my whole life. Cause I, for the life of me, had no, I have no CD. I have no cassette. I got nothing. That is amazing. How could, how did that happen? I, I, I don't know. Like I said, literally somehow I, I think I wound up with at least two, if not three vinyl copies. That is, that's bizarre. It is bizarre. I feel like Mark Anthony K at this point, but. I probably have, I have at least one CD. I may have two of that. I don't think I bought two, but regardless. Mm. One other quick note with regards to, well, and and I, I guess neither of you have a physical copy, so you probably haven't heard the original version. But, you know, I've so I've listened to this in preparation for this episode on all three media. I've listened to wow. CD, vinyl, and the streaming. The streaming, obviously, is the, what, the 2012 remaster or whenever it was remastered. That remaster is, if possible, even brighter than the original. Mm. It's, mm. it's, I mean, it's it's still good because there's still a lot of Tony underneath there, but it's it's super duper bright. 
um, mm. which is, for me to say is shocking. It, it's almost <laughs> like when when I when I have you know, uh, if if I have a slab of chocolate cake that I consider to be too chocolatey, you know, there's an ungodly mm-hmm. amount of chocolate. In yeah, there yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, I'm I love the bright stuff, but yeah, I, mm. I was I was a little taken aback by the uh, the, the streaming version. This was one rare instance where um, my little sister had it on cassette and I copied it off of her. Um, and she was by no means a prog conduit. So, you know, it's a pop album right there. Yeah. Uh, but but more to the uh, tonality of it, cassettes were dark, man, back then. I mean, you, you could only carry so much high end in those little puppies. Yeah, mm, it's true. It's true. It's right around this time of the night where I'm wondering. There you go, Paul. Well, you probably had a cassette that was in the back you of your of your escort. It could have been. <laughs> it could have been. I wonder if I lost the CD in the divorce proceedings. Like, I wonder if I lost custody of of. <laughs> you should have paid closer attention to the. To, to, I to should the have. Degree, man. I I should have. Um, it's right around this time of the night where I begin to wonder if this time next week we'll still be talking about so. it would not surprise me Uh, i just hit record i don't know what the hell was wrong with me tonight (laughs) are you guys recording i have some recording going yeah i've got some recording going too so good and and we talked about you know our sort of experience the one thing that i very clearly remember about this because again 1986 when both genesis and gabriel broke was about the time i sort of got on board with all of this. I had, I had known about Genesis a little bit before. I had known a little bit about Peter Gabriel. But the the one thing I do remember very clearly is I had a cassette that had Invisible Touch on one side, so on the other side, and I would listen to it while mowing my aunt and uncle's yard. Uh, I, I, I vividly, I, I remember... You know, we all know that my memory is crap, but there are certain things that I remember very, very clearly. I remember that house. I remember mowing that yard, and I remember this summer listening to to this these two records. And I can even picture approximately where in the yard I would have to f- stop and flip the tape. I, I mean, it's just, ha, ha, it, it's ha. amazing. You know, the, when I do remember something, how clearly I remember it, given the what, fact that I was don't that, remember stuff. Was that like a real actual Walkman that you had uh, that you were you were listening on? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if if you recall, I was I was somewhat of a of a Walkman aficionado, and there used to be those <laughs> those little metal ones that that were like if you didn't have a cassette in there they actually slid together to be the size of a cassette case and then if you wanted to put a cassette in it would kind of slide apart so there'd be enough room on the top end and you would slide it in there i had two of those i had i had a red one and it broke and then i had a pink one and it was the pink one that i was using in this time frame wow did you ever uh, listen to White Snake slide it in when you had to slide it in? <laughs> <laughs> I have I have no vivid memories. I don't think I don't know because I bought Slide It In on vinyl. I may have dubbed a cassette of it, but it it, it wasn't in heavy rotation. I remember listening to White Snake vinyl at your house, Joe. You had some you had some deep vinyl of White Snake. I, I remember. Still do. I, I still, That's amazing. I, I, I love it. I still have I think the original version of crying in the rain. I love that. Yep. Absolutely. So, you know, I just, I, it, it's, it's an interesting sort of thing. 
But, you know, maybe it's time to discuss a little bit of the the context of 1986, if you're ready, Ken. Oh, my. You know, we go light on the record labels here on the Palaver. We like to focus on uh, content, melody, lyrics, emotion. But it, it's worth saying there was that whole charisma thing and, and, and Tony Smith. Um, but in the States, it was uh, Amit Erdogan. Yeah. Who they started out with on the first two albums. Amit dumped him in partnership with the other butthead he was working with. And uh, he ended up with um, what eventually became Geffen. And then in particular, uh, around this time, David Geffen is finding his own. That's that's some pretty good context right there. Um, you know, and Erdogan was wrong uh, to dump Milt. He admitted that. So, you know, we, we, we last left Mr. Gabriel with security in September of 1982. What happened in between that and so, well, it's four years, but it's the lean four years. So I will speak quickly. Rush signals. Uh, Peter Hamill, I will mention him only because he was neighbors uh, with Peter Gabriel. Uh, we got some Super Tramp. We got some uh, Pink Floyd, if you like the final cut, which I do. Brilliant uh, has script for a gesture's tears. Steve Hackett, highly strung. Got some Mike Oldfield, Electric Light Orchestra, more Peter Hamill, Asia Alpha, uh, Saga, Genesis Self-Titled. This is all 1983. 90125, we can't talk about enough here on the Palaver 1984. Reliance Fugazi, King Crimson, Three of a Perfect Pair, Dave Gilmore, About Face, Rush Grace Under Pressure. Uh, we've read many of these uh, many times before. Yeah. Uh, Roger Waters, The Pros and Cons of Bitching. Is that what he does? <laughs> and then Mike Old, <laughs> Mike, <laughs> Steve Hackett, uh, Queen's Right the Warning, uh, some good Frank Zappa in here. Um, Tears for Fear, a song from the big chair, 1985. Nice. Um, Misplaced Childhood, also 1985, Asia Astra, uh, more Saga, Rush with Power Windows, more Frank Zappa. Uh, in here 1986 ELO Balance of Power uh, Zappa does humor belong in music talk talk the color of spring Peter Hamill of Van de Graaff generator fame his skin album and then in September or sorry May so is released uh, so it, it's the very weird lean Pop years, uh, very little true prog in that reading of four years. Remind me of when Invisible Touch came out. It would have been right after this? Three weeks later. Three weeks. Yeah. That's amazing. And then only probably five weeks later, Queensryche's Rage for Order was released. Oh, jeez. Mm -hmm. I cannot wait to talk about Rage for Order. But that's not why we're here tonight. Yeah. So yeah, what what's very fun is, is is sometimes I like to look at the Billboard Hot 100 to see, uh -huh. you know, where where these cross over. And rarely, when you're looking at you know the 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 uh, Billboard Top 100, do you find the actual artist we're talking about? Um, Sledgehammer comes in at number 23 in 1986, um, amidst of some really fun things like. Uh, Simple Minds with Alive and Kickin'. Um, oh, doesn't Kerr make an appearance in a, in a Gabriel thing? 
get yeah somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There's there's some crossover. I think we talked about it last yeah. um, episode. Um, it had something to do with the. Mm. I, I, he performed. Mm. He performed Biko with Simple Minds. I think is what it was. Yes, that's what cool. it was. Yes, and uh, lots of interesting things. But but this is uh, some of the things that will really sort of like say oh, right was like say you say me by Lionel Richie, uh, Kyrie by Mister Mister, Addicted wow. to Love by Robert Palmer, um, and Kiss by uh, Prince and the Revolution. Mm. So. Oh, uh, I dare you, Paul. Can you, can you find any Bowie in there? I'm sure that I can. Yeah, I wanted to call attention to Niall Rogers, who was pretty famous at this point for working with David Bowie on Let's yeah. Dance. Um, as well as um, Arcadia and Duran Duran. Hell yeah. Uh, you Give Love a Bad Name by Bon Jovi. Um, <laughs> this must have been... I don't see any... David Bowie. This must have been. I don't know uh, that David Bowie had a release because I yeah. think I think Let's Dance and um, oh I forget what the other one was. I think those came out before this. Yeah, that's what I'm I'm thinking. He, this must have been right after that because this is '86. Yeah, Let's Dance. That was more like junior high. Oh, '83. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan, absolutely wonderful. Mm. it's great stuff so uh yeah lots lots of uh you know we were talking you know ken you you mentioned your sister had this record and i've discovered it through my sister which is pretty good evidence that that this is in, in the pop category but one of the things that we talked about in genesis by the numbers is like you know it could be prog it could be pop or it could be in the valley in between the two and one of the things that i like remember about this record getting it and listening to it and i was getting into it around the same time that i got to go see peter gabriel live and so because of that is why i was i got fixated on the album peter gabriel's plays live and i remember basically listening to plays live and then going right to this and then going back to plays live and going to so and, and, and back and forth. And it nothing seemed jarring at, at all about doing that. I mean, obviously the sound was much much, much more, you know, modern in, in, to my ears, but it wasn't like the experience I have listening from like the Genesis album to Invisible Touch. Right? Like to me, that is a that's a hard, that's a hard one to the other. So I don't know. I, I I guess the reason that I bring it up is that while while this was obviously the the album that brought Peter Gabriel into the mainstream, um, it was said in in this documentary that I watched, uh, a classic album. So it was it, somebody mentioned that it was more like, you know, the mainstream came to Peter Gabriel because of this album, right. and I kind of feel like that's 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 how it is here. And, and- and, and and I agree with that, and I think that was the, the point I was trying to make. I mean, you know, there are a couple songs, you know, Sledgehammer and Big Time, which are, you know, if, if I were doing a Peter Gabriel by the numbers, I would probably put firmly in the, the pop category. But, I mean, a lot of these songs are decidedly not yeah. um, pop. And it's not like it's not like they're in the valley necessarily. They're they're different. But yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But 
But let's let's talk about the particulars here. So as we mentioned, and, and it's very funny, it came out very close to my birthday. It was released, uh, Peter Gabriel So was released on 19 May 1986 on the labels Charisma, Virgin, and Geffen, produced by Peter Gabriel and the aforementioned Daniel Lanois. A huge host of personnel are credited on this record, including Peter Gabriel, Tony Levin, um, David Rhodes, Jerry Marotta, Manu Kache, um, Chris Hughes, Stuart Copeland. Can I just make an aside here? I think if you put me against a wall and told me I had to declare my favorite drummer of all time, I'm pretty sure Stuart Copeland would be the answer I would give you. Wow. Daniel Lenoir, Wayne Jackson on trumpet and cornet, um, Mark Rivera playing saxophones, Don Mickelson, P.P. Arnold, Coral Gordon, D. Lewis, Richard T., Simon Clark, Kate Bush, um, Shankar, Larry Klein, Yosu Nandor, Michael Bean, Jim Kerr, Ronnie Bright, Jalma Correa, Jimmy Brawler, Bill Laswell, Nile Rogers on, uh, yes. on one track, Laurie Anderson, and uh, Greg Fulganetti. On, oh, he did mastering, but we'll we'll mention him anyway. the The original track listing on the the original vinyl and CD: Red Rain, Sledgehammer, Don't Give Up, That Voice Again, In Your Eyes, Mercy Street, Big Time, We Do What We're Told, and the bonus track on the CD and cassette was This Is the Picture, featuring Laurie Anderson. Um, and as mentioned in the 2002 remaster is when that was, they they took In Your Eyes out from slot five and moved it to slot nine. Now, there's a big paragraph here, or a big uh, opening portion of the wikis that I will read, and, you know, we'll deal with it. And then we get to go to the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So is the fifth studio album by English singer-songwriter Peter Gabriel, released 19 May 1986 by Charisma Records. After working on the soundtrack to the film Birdie, producer Daniel Lanois was invited to remain at Gabriel's Somerset home during 1985 to work on his next solo project. Initial sessions for So consisted of Gabriel Lanois and guitarist David Rhodes, although these grew to include a number of percussionists. Although Gabriel continued to use the pioneering Fairlight CMI digital sampling synthesizer, songs from these sessions were less experimental than his previous material. Nevertheless, Gabriel drew on various musical influences, fusing pop, soul, and art rock with elements of traditional world music, particularly African and Brazilian styles. It is Gabriel's first non-eponymous album, so representing an, quote, anti-title that resulted from label pressure to properly market his music. Gabriel hmm. toured so on his This Way Up tour, 1986 to 1987, with some songs performed at human rights and charity concerts during this period. Often considered his best and most accessible album, so was an immediate commercial success and transformed Gabriel from a cult artist into a mainstream star, becoming his best-selling solo release. It has been certified five-fold platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America and triple platinum by the British phonographic industry. The album's lead single, Sledgehammer, was promoted with an innovative, innovative animated music video and achieved particular success, reaching number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and subsequently winning a record of 
nine MTV Video Music Awards. Mm. It was followed by four further singles, Don't Give Up, Big Time, In Your Eyes, and Red Rain. The album received positive reviews from most critics who praised its songwriting, melodies, and fusion of genres, although some retrospective reviews have criticized its overt commercialism and 1980s production sound. So was nominated for the Grammy Award for Album of the Year in 1987, but lost to Paul Simon's Graceland. It is it has appeared in lists of the best albums of the 1980s, and Rolling Stone included the album in their 2004 and 2020 editions of the 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. In 2000, it was voted number 82 in Cullen Larkin's all-time top 1,000 albums. So was remastered in 2002, partially re-recorded for Gabriel's 2011 orchestral project New Blood, and issued as a box set in 2012. It was a lot. Now, the revised and updated edition of 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. I will read the passage for so, and then before we move on, I would like to sort of talk about a couple of things that I sort of noticed while I was was perusing for this. Intricate beauty or dancing chickens? Unfortunately, the latter can claim credit for elevating Peter Gabriel from arty stardom to super-duperness. But through the Sledgehammer video's ubiquity, well, I'm sorry, but super duperness, super duperness. I quote. But though the Sledgehammer video's ubiquity has bludgeoned the song, its parent album is a marvel. Not that Gabriel was a stranger to the making of great music. His first four solo albums are full of fascinating songs, but past magic moments were often buried amid lyrical and musical experimentation. So, in contrast, elicits a sigh of satisfaction. A wash in delicate percussion, tasteful keyboards and bubbling bass, Red Rain and Mercy Street, dedicated to the American poet Anne Sexton, are stunning. Of the epics, the Kate Bush duet Don't Give Up is heart-wrenching while In Your Eyes achieved iconic status after its appearance in the John Cusack movie Say Anything. In Your Eyes also heralded the international arrival of Sengalinese singer Yusu Nador. Gabriel's commitment to world music predated so and continues today. No other mainstream star has done so much to introduce audiences to music they may otherwise not hear. Other collaborators on the album include Laurie O. Superman Anderson, whose own version of This Is The Picture appears on her Mr. Heartbreak. Unhindered by a quirky title, a nice shape but very little meaning, Gabriel told Rolling Stone, and a sleeve that for once showcased Peter Gabriel's good looks, so rocketed to multi-million sales, excellent albums followed, but the breathtaking so is the best introduction to a dazzling discography. Here ends the reading. Now... The, I like the alliteration at, at the end, the dazzling... Dazzling discography. Discography. Yeah. Now, the, I agree with you, Ken. The super-duper is a little bit super suspect. Yeah, yeah. Super-duperness. After he like criticizes the dancing chickens. I don't know. <laughs> now, the, the way this Minus book... Minus points for all of that. The, the yeah. way this book is laid out is chronologically. So, basically, I was flipping through 1986 looking for the so section. And I happened upon uh, a, a another um, um, 
entry here that I'd like to read just a little bit out of and then talk about why this, this hung out or sprung out at me. Talk, talk, the color of spring. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but the technological revolution of the 1980s was not kind to rock. With the gap between elevator music and top 10 single bridged by the ubiquitous Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, a generation of drummers was being replaced by machines. The result? Really crappy drums. <laughs> a turning point of sorts came in 1986, surely the worst year for music ever. And that's really what I wanted to get to. So The worst year for music ever. Now... As I was rolling through 1986 in this in this book, now granted, this is the cream of the crop because these are the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Of course. But let's just let's just page through it and talk about some things that pop out. Elvis Costello and the Attractions, Blood and Chocolate. Um, say what you want to about this, and if you watch the 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 movie special on Apple TV as I did you'll learn that there's a lot to feel bad about this, but Beastie Boys licensed to ill. Mm -hmm. Metallica, Master of Puppets, The The, Infected. Wow. Um, Megadeth, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. Let's see, Sonic Youth, Evol, Throwing Muses, Paul Simon, Graceland, Run DMC, Raising Hell, XTC, Skylarking. Um, The Smiths, The Queen Is Dead, Anthrax. Oh, I'm sorry. Anthrax Among the Living is 1987. But I mean, it clearly was not the worst year for music ever. That seems a little little hyperbolic. That's crazy. That's just crazy. crazy. So anyway. Maybe for fidelity? (laughs) That could very well be. We could do a whole episode on just the people who played on this album. Right. I mean, it's, it's huge. So when we get into this, I mean, honestly... I don't even know what to say about this record because I've I've already said a lot of it. Honest to God, it, it I could just talk about Tony Levin on every track. That's what I could do. And I would be perfectly happy to do that. Because he's he's ubiquitous and he's delightful and it's great. Um but we'll we can go through through track by track and I have very little to say, and my 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 hope it, is that you guys have a lot to to really add it, on top of it, it. It's really amazing that as ubiquitous and as amazing as Tony Levin is, like he's he's there's three tracks that he's not even on the album. I know, you know? right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's that that's um, amazing in, in in itself. So I guess I guess we can start uh, out. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ken. I gave a shout out to David Rhodes earlier. He is part of the. Magic Trio. It was Daniel Lanois, David Rhodes, and Gabriel in all of the initial sessions. And that seemed to be the secret sauce to so. And Jerry Marotta is not present, and Larry Fast is not present. This marks a real turning point. I mean, uh, Larry Fast is all over Bertie, for example. I mean, because it's indicative of you know, security and melt and everything that came immediately before it. Uh, in a lot of ways, Larry Fast was the secret sauce. And Peter said, no, I'm going to be my own programmer as much as I can. I'm going to play with all this gear and I'm going to come up with a new secret sauce. It took him four years, though. It was not natural. It was not easy. And all the lore is very consistent. 
Peter does not work quickly. And he likes to stay at home. This is all done in Bath, England. I mean, other than, I think, you know, the things that were done in New York, like Niall Rogers and uh, yeah, whatnot. So he's very much a homebody, likes to settle down and uh, establish a close-knit team, and in particular, spend a long time with lyrics. Um, we do not dwell on personal lives so much in the palaver, but let me read this into the record very briefly, and then we can pass over it. Um, it was it was during the the previous tour that uh, Peter met Rosanna Arquette, and it was after finishing the security album that Peter's first wife Jill fell for David Lord, the producer of Security. So th there 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 was That's quite awkward. an odd there was quite an odd dynamic going on between Peter and Jill as they attempted to salvage their marriage throughout this period. Did not know that. I did know, however, that there was an occasion at the at the farmhouse where uh, Daniel Lanois was so frustrated that Peter Gabriel couldn't couldn't come up with lyrics for a song that he told him to go into the old cow barn and just go in there and, and write lyrics. And then proceeded to <laughs> like they did the to Peter during um, the yeah. lamb. Right. They locked him. They locked him in the barn all afternoon, and they wouldn't even let him come out for lunch. And and apparently Peter ended up somehow knocking down the door completely, um, and <laughs> and and got and got the message. But um, but yeah. And and, and I think you know. I, we're not going I'm not going to read a lot of the lyrics on this album in the rapturous tones that I do with with some fish lyrics. But I think overall these are these I mean, Peter's pretty good at lyrics. And 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 you know, he has some moments that make you go, Ooh, I like that. So it it's amazing that it's so difficult for him to get them out. Yeah. You don't get the sense though, when you hear stories like that. You know, I read an article this weekend uh, uh, that talked a little bit about Getty Lee and Neil Peart, and and Getty talked about how as as time went on, Neil became much uh, uh, much less married to the specific words and more married to the idea, and he would go back and re-edit things and take feedback. You don't get the impression, and I and I always assume that you know, Fish, you know, had an entire legal pad of of attempts you know uh before he finalized the final you know yeah you don't get the sense that that that's that's how peter works you get the sense that that he suffers over every single word but once it gets onto the paper that's it you yeah know? I, th I think that's very true that, that that is true and i mean you know they're not necessarily the recordings aren't available at least not that i have access to but when you have access to some of these early versions of Marillion songs, you know, like you said, Paul, either the words are different or Fish doesn't even have words at that point. And he's yeah. just kind of mumbling the, the vocal line. So that, that's yeah. interesting. We've pontificated a genesis, right, about why there's so many tonights <laughs> and ahas because, you know, in those sessions that Phil was just filling up space with sounds. Yeah, I think, yeah, he just likes to. But, but yeah, I, th I think that's an outstanding observation because you know peter does have things he wants to say and he takes the time to figure out how to say them and so yeah. when when they when he does arrive at them i think they're they're very solid so cool 
also, oh, I lot. did. I did catch an interesting term, apparently from Peter's lips, the language of which he would vocalize without full English words was the Gabrielese language. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. I, um, so I, I, I watched, as I said before, this classic albums of so, and you know, whenever you go on YouTube or on like, a, 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 a channel and you watch one of these you're never really sure what you're going to get you're never going to be sure if you're going to get that jackass rolling stone guy you <laughs> know sitting, david frick <laughs> or or if it's going to be like you know random slices of interviews but i have to say and this is and i'm sorry joe it's on amazon prime but it is it is classic albums peter gabriel so it is so well done and and so I, I, a lot of a lot of what's in, in my mind is kind of from that because I just watched it uh, two nights ago, and or maybe it was even last night. Who knows? But one of the funny things is that, like, I'm when I'm watching uh, Daniel Lanois talk about like anything, and I'm looking at him, and and like I like I pictured him as being sort of this like artsy kind of Jedi kind of guy, <laughs> like, you know, just eccentric. And I don't know why, but when I think about all the albums that I love that he's done, I just, that's like, you you put that person in your head, like what they might be like. They, they're like a wizard. He, he was just like a normal rock dude, you know? And he's sitting there, he's got these glasses on and a hat and, and just kind of like talking about how they went through and spent like nine months doing this. And, and and how like that was the fastest record that Peter Gabriel ever made nine months, and how it was just this nine months where they basically did nothing but live at this house and barn. And, oh, for uh, bonus points, do what epic U two album did Lanois do previous to this? That I uh, was, um, of course, the Joshua Tree. Yes. Uh, was it? Or was it the I Unforgettable so. Fire? I think it was the Unforgettable Fire. There you go. I thought it was the Joshua Tree, too. No? We'll have to check it out. Oh, I'm dying to know now. Yeah, he just looks like some guy behind the counter in a 7-Eleven. Oh, boy. Sorry, guys. Is he? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Joshua was a combination of Lanois and Brian Eno. Got it. Okay. Yeah, Lanois, he just kind of like... We're, he's Canadian, right? He, yep. he, yeah. He just kind of looks like he... Drives a drives a pickup truck and and works a couple shifts at the Seven Eleven. Eno and Lanois also did the Unforgettable Fire. Yeah, so I just found that to be funny. I don't know why. You know, when you just when you have a preconceived notion of somebody and then like that is shattered. I'm sorry, but Eno, Eno and Lanois also did Octum Baby. Nah, it it is really remarkable though his his influence on on where this this record goes. He was. You know, he claims that, you know, he convinced Peter to use symbols again, right? He, he oh, said, he's taking credit for that. He, he's taking credit for it. He, he said that, you know, he kind of said, Hey, why don't we, why don't we make this like a hi hat album? You know, like, the, you know, you don't have to, we don't have to just bang the symbols. Like we could, you know, and, and like he talked about Stuart Copeland and, and, and things like that. And, and it like, what moment when, like, in 1986, how accomplished is Stuart Copeland? And you call him up and say, "Hey, hey, hey, Stu, 
we want you to do some hi-hat on this record for us, would you? Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have you pulled him up on YouTube, though? He cannot stop talking. He's the most social human. Really? And yeah, 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 yeah. He, he, he's a machine. But, but to your point, Paul, I, th- I mean, that was the height of the police's influence as well, right? Yeah, yeah I would say. Yeah. I would say. Um, Before they imploded, but that's a whole well, separate conversation. Sure. Uh, and a couple of the other things that really impacted me when, when um, you know, the horns in um, Sledgehammer, right? So Sledgehammer, you know, has this, like, amazing, like, shuffle of a beat. Mm. And it really is, it's really, like, I never really thought about this before, but it's really like a soul kind of song and the and and you know peter gabriel talked about the his love of you know early otis redding and Mm -hmm. and the way that that he did that and that's kind of what you know sledgehammer kind of had that that vibe and wayne jackson actually played with otis redding and recorded with otis redding you know back in the day and and so he he came in and, and he did the or actually i think they went to new york to uh to record the drum of uh, the uh the horns and i just found that to be just like kind of silly kind of silly cool you know um the guy who played horns on otis redding is adding the otis redding horns to sledgehammer which basically slam dunks it as a soul a soul tune yeah the memphis horns yes yeah i mean we were not into horns back then like we categorically did not listen to music that contained horns so it was it was a big deal for this to permeate our suburban little minds so interesting point and and we can you know talk about this individually but since the idea of the horns came up we're I'm going to put out something subjective and and see how we feel about this because you know at this time right you you almost you can't avoid the comparisons between you know Peter Gabriel Genesis and Phil Collins Phil Collins fell in love with horns Genesis obviously used them much earlier um, I guess what Duke was the first time we saw them in 1980, mm. and they showed up on Abacab. They showed up on Three Sides Live, if I recall correctly. When the horns show up in Genesis, it is jarring. It is a sign of the apocalypse. It is a sign that 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 uh, Phil Collins has sold not only his soul but the entire soul of progressive rock music to the devil. And and like I said, the, the sky is dark and the world is going to end. I think much like, and I'm trying to think of how to express this, much in the same way that when on security, Peter Gabriel starts, or even back on, on Melt, when Peter Gabriel brings in, you know, some of the uh, the, the world music aspects into that and certainly when he talks about um certain aspects of native american culture in security he does so in a much more genuine and respectful way 
the feeling to me is that Peter Gabriel's use of the Memphis horns here seems more genuine and less contrived than the introduction of horns into Genesis. Is that an uh, an out of the world statement? I don't think so. I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. You know. Yeah, the, agreed. Yeah, so, I, I I I feel like the Phil Collins, especially the Phil Collins use of the horns, um, but when they are used in Genesis, in a way, ah, maybe not always, but they're more of a, a production uh, flourish, right? Like, right. hey, we've got this cool, uh, we've got this cool uh, part, this cool bass part. You know, it would be cool. Let's double them with the horns. See what happens, right? Um, or I've got this melody. Uh, let's let's put the horns in there, and and change you know change it up. It's like a it's like a trick, and like like sledgehammer, you, you, the whole entire song is a groove. It's just this like, and and it's like they were like we need horns belonging here, right? It, it delivers the soul. It fits the shuffle. It's it it complements everything. It's a horn part. Right. It's not a part for anything else. And and like when I was in when I was when I played in the wedding band, we always wrote horn parts for stuff that wasn't horn parts. And that's kind of like the feel I get from Genesis sometimes when they have horns. You're like, that's not a horn part. Right. Okay. So oh, beautiful. A horn part. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Very good way to put it. I didn't know this. So and this is the picture, which is uh Laurie Anderson's, you know, collaboration. Uh, and Laurie Anderson, it's funny because I was into Laurie Anderson, I, I think, before I got into this record, I think, because she had that uh, Superman song. And uh, Ken, I think, I want to say Jermaine Mank, um, mm. our choreographer. Choreographer, yes. Yeah, she she somehow turned me on to, um, to that. However, mm -hmm. um, uh, on that track, the bass guitar is played by none other than Bill Laswell. And mm. Bill Laswell is was introduced to me by my old neighbor in Newtown. Not old; he's as old as I am. But um, my neighbor in Newtown, Brian Roundsville, who was a closet prog guy, and <laughs> closet prog guy. <laughs> he he like was totally into Kim Crim Crimson and all this great stuff. And he would give me all of these like Crimson discs to listen to, and he gave me a few discs. And, and and on top of it was this Bill Laswell compilation of John Coltrane songs, which he basically took recordings of John Coltrane and like remixed them and, and did ethereal things to them. It was freaking oh, wow. awesome. And he had a band called Material and had a, uh, I think the album was The Western World. And it had... Um, spoken word there was like these these jazz and just like like jazz grooves with spoken word readings by uh william s burroughs it was it was one of the most creative and wild things that i've, I've and i've literally never been able to find a, the, a real recording of what that was but he had his own label axiom and he put put those records out on there and it just kind of blew me away when I saw that that he played on um, on cell. Cool. A lot of seeds planted there, and you brought up the King Crimson of this all. And uh, the flavor can only 
dream. I mean, that that, that, that that's a huge catalog right there. But I like I like the uh, the foreshadowing. Joe, are we going track by track? I think we should. Oh my, let's do this. So we open it up with Red Rain, and you know, talk about and it's so obvious, but you have to talk about it because this album opens up with not only the return of symbols, but Stuart Copeland on the hi-hat, which is, it's, it's just, you know, it's yummy. There's there's no other way to describe it. And and, and again, it, it sort of conveys immediately the, the brightness of this recording because it's, it's so clear and crisp and, and delightful. This song, and, and when the song kicks in, I mean, you, you start out with Stuart Copeland, which is spectacular. But again, right out of the gate, you've got Tony Levin just getting up in your face and going, I am now a full-fledged bass god, and you shall kneel before me. And I'm yeah. like, yes, yes, please, Mr. Levin. Absolutely, I will do that for you. Um, it's just, uh, there's so much about this song that I find powerful. It's, it's an incredible way to open an album just the, the and I think this is a a, a fantastic uh, example of Peter's lyrics. Um, it it can't be that cool. The ground is still warm to touch. It just mm. that spooks me out every time I hear that. Absolutely, just moving. And and Gabriel, you know, we talked about this. I think in the in the security episode, Gabriel now has you know, the full vocal toolbox. And he's got that sort of, and I don't know how you describe it, but that sort of, I guess it's a, a breathy sort of throat voice or whatever that, mm-hmm. that it's, oh, it's, it's so controlled and it's so, it's like, it's powerful and, and relaxed at the same time. It, it, it just boggles my mind. But in, in this context, it seems so urgent and uh, just oh i love this oh absolutely i mean i i i think i was crazy enough to select this in karaoke a couple of times um oh that that's awesome ken (laughs) i mean uh i mean i mean uh, it doesn't go particularly high um it, it does have the falsetto Bs in four places or whatnot in the verses. It's no supper is ready. Let's put it that way. And it's certainly no shock the monkey with all those falsetto notes. So it, it's actually an attainable uh, song by, a, you know, a high baritone or low tenor. Um, but it, it's just, it's, it's just epic and everyone knows it and, and folks will, will, will sing along and it, it's, kind of poppy without being corny it, it, it's an absolutely perfect song in my book and uh melodically it's it's mostly three chords it, i think it veers into a, a fourth and a minor in places but it's it, it, it's that constant push of the uh c major to the d major getting up to the pop e minor and that simplicity with the electric piano is just amazing in, in the in the beginning joe i would say though there's a little bit of rhythm of the heat, you know. We yeah. we can we we can call attention to the hi hats for obvious reason because we've been deprived of them <laughs> for, for four or five albums. But but the, but the, the true power behind that opening really is uh, just more of what we've come to love, which are toms. Yep, mm. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And and while I still have failed 
miserably at getting ready to have a, a real conversation about this. This song is also a continuation of the Mozo story. Yes. Ah, yes. yes. The Mozo. I, I still struggle with this whole Mozo thing, but let's let's talk Mozo here. If, if, yeah, if able, his his protagonist I ha- I haven't is read in the some. Story yet. <laughs> I can't. His protagonist is in some kind of a, a bubble, whether that's a self-imposed bubble or or whether it's it's being forced to communicate through radio waves or being stuck in a radio or something. Um, th- this started possibly in the first solo album not correct uh and there there are two tracks here this and voice um so this this wraps up the mozo theme but personally you know i just like referring to red rain in terms of human relationships and a relationship that is very much strained and and just seeing it as a disagreement or argument between two people when I mean, you know it can't be that cold the ground is still warm to touch we are still warm to each other how did this happen so quickly i like that mm. nice ken yeah i you know for me when i when i the, hear this I, I, did did that 1001 reading like talk about 80s production like i just it did yeah i just don't get it like every time i listen to this i'm i'm amazed at how relevant it still sounds and i I don't get that uh at at all and maybe i'm just an old fart and um and i think that that's relevant but but the way that the way that you know you mentioned the bass the the electric piano the way it all just flows, it, 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 you don't, when you're, to me, when I'm listening to the song, I barely even detect individual instruments. It's just kind of this wash of, of sound. Yeah. And I love it. And then as it all kinds of fades at the end, and I don't know, this is really weird, but at the, you know, as it all kind of fades out and he's singing the last sort of reprise at, with the piano and he gets to the very end. And he just says the red rain. Like mm, he gorgeous. doesn't. There are so there are so many opportunities to be a vocal dick in that moment <laughs> and hold out a note extra long or whatever. And he doesn't. He just sings it. And I, every time I hear it, I'm just like, "Fucking a, that's awesome. That's so awesome." He just sings it and ends it. I love it. I love that phrase, vocal dick, because I hate it when people are vocal dicks. I, I would have never <laughs> used that phrase, but I, but I absolutely hate it. And you're you're absolutely right. He doesn't uh, he doesn't do that. But that's because, you know, Peter Gabriel is completely in charge of Peter Gabriel. He doesn't need to be a dick. You know, right? I think it's yeah. Good. Well said. <laughs> Well, he did it all. I mean, he probably did something dickish in Epping Forest. Well, he did a lot of dickish things in Epping Forest, <laughs> but that's... And Lamb is full of dickness to dickness. Um, well, I think... Yeah. I, I, I'm not prepared to have this conversation, and this may be a stupid point. <laughs> I'm not having this Epping conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I think... Epping and the Lamb may hold certain amounts of conceit but not necessarily vocal dickishness okay okay well we we agree red rain yeah. is, is epic 
Yeah, it is epic. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a fantastic way to to start a record. Absolutely, hundred percent. And uh, you know, I just I, I've always loved this song. I'm pretty sure I've loved this song from the first time that I actually heard it, and I still love it today. And 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 you know, can you describe it as as a pop song? But in a lot of ways, it's it's not as well. It it sort of sits in that in that valley as as Paul likes to describe it. Mm, stealth prog. And 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 from there we go right into, you know, the poppiest of the pop with Sledgehammer. Now we already talked a lot about some aspects of this. I had a note about the horns, Tony Levin again, and, and it's fantastic, right? In in the beginning of this song, you know, Tony's playing very simple bass lines and still just you know, it, his sound is so freaking out of this world. It's delightful. And then when the when the, the song really kicks in, you know, he he's just he's grooving the shit out of it underneath all of that. <sighs> yeah. And 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 just having a, a fantastic time doing it. It it's it's a pop song. You can't you can't deny it, but it's so freaking fun. I mean, you just, you fall into that groove and you just go along. You can't kind of help yourself. I mean, you know, when you like, when you, when you think about something like just, I think we just recently had some experiences where we, we all did this. Um, I'm going to use my experience of trying to pro- procure so on vinyl, it, you know, I'd like, I, I'm looking for it and I, and I, cause I want it. And and I find all of these imposters with all of the the, the the wrong track order, and so now I'm on a quest, right? And I'm and I'm literally going to spend whatever I need to 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 pay less than fifty dollars to get this vinyl, and it's going to be a quest, okay? And like we do that, we we seek things out, and the, and the only re- yeah the only reason we do it is because I want to capture some type of moment from my past, like where I listened to this on vinyl and it was. It was it was it was wonderful. Well, Peter Gabriel has a similar experience, and I mentioned it right. It was the Otis Redding. He had seen Wayne Jackson on tour with Otis Redding in the sixties, <laughs> and he was like, "That's the sound I want. I need to find that guy," and and that's what he did. He went and found the Memphis Horns, and they they picked the whole entire uh, thing. And they all went to New York so they could record the horns and a couple other things. And and that's just badass. Manu recording this in one one take is also freaking crazy. Really? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this snare sound was so, not invented in one take. I mean, th- 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 there was something very deliberate and perfect and crafted about the snare sound. I don't know if they so. I don't know if they triggered any samples over top of this, but this is one of the the tightest, most perfect, delicious snares in all of contemporary music. So, Ken, you know when they say, like, the the best secret to getting a good mix is to to get a good recording? Yeah. Uh, The... Uh, watching this documentary, it, it it was like that that um, dark side of the moon where they're like all at the board and they're like yep. fucking around with the faders and they're bringing shit up, like everything. And 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 the thing that's great about it is they're as they're messing around, they just like it's like they loaded up the 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 two track, like the um the the two inch 
uh, yeah, traps. two inch tape. There, there is no effects on them. Like that, you bring up the horns. There's no reverb. Their vocals are completely dry, and you know they're bringing up instruments. They sound incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's almost like I don't even know what they did to the mix. They probably just you know put a little high high end, dialed back the low mids, and just put some reverb. I mean, it it it's unbelievable how good the shit was coming through. But you know, so the story goes like Manu was a was a studio drummer. Like that's what he did. He went from studio to studio. He showed up. He went in and he played a track. Told you know, they they said you know this was a shuffle. He listened to it. He goes in and 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 he said he came out and they listened to it and he said he was watching Peter dancing around and smiling ear to ear and he turned around he's like that was awesome he was like all right i want you to go back in there and do another take and he goes why (laughs) (laughs) i'm assuming you guys read some of the lore on the wikis about the recording process for this with the with the two tape machines and the demos being on one that the musicians would hear as they played and recorded on the other I did not. That, that was not in my book by Daryl yeah. Slayer. Yes. I did not hear that either. So it's 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 in the wikis if you if you scroll down. So apparently the the three Stooges, as they called themselves, um, yes. Lanois, Rhodes, and and Gabriel had recorded had demoed a bunch of stuff, and and in Peter's studio he had these these two almost uh, closely related uh, tape machines. So they recorded all of the demos on on deck B, which they would then play to the musicians in the studio as they recorded onto deck A. And huh. then wow. sometimes they would bounce things back and forth. So, you know, I, I don't know how that fits into the story you were just telling, Paul, but it 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 does speak to, you know, maybe how they were able to capture some of this in a lot of ways that sounds almost eerily similar to that um that documentary on the making of to the bone right where 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 steven came in with all these demos and they recorded like right on top of it and kept yeah. some of it and, and didn't wow yeah it's it's uh it's it's a good it's it's always funny i used to remember hearing Too bad they didn't do that with future bites <laughs> oh. I uh, I used to remember this thing. Oh, we use this, you know, from a demo. And I was like, how do they do that? And uh, but I guess I guess it was a pretty common practice, especially like, you know, I guess this is when home studios I think were a little bit more common. You know, it seemed like every artist had a home studio, um, but they were more portable. I guess really is what yeah what it came down to. I don't know. Um, but but I don't. There there's probably. Well, the well, the other thing I want to say about Sledgehammer is is I also take exception to the comments about the video being uh, any any disparaging comments about the video I find to be very disturbing. I remember when this video was out and it was captivating. It was. It still is. I watched it, it today. I, it's it's it yeah. is. It, it was so innovative. I don't. I, I don't think anyone's, you know, t- even come close to touching it, ever. And it was. It was a. It was a. As a sixteen-year-old, like artistic person, like it was mind blowing. You know, it was funny because they they did mention in that. You know, I guess it was about the cover, but but Gabriel's good looks. He looks spectacular in this time period. Yeah. You know, he's he's got. 
he's got great hair. He's he's got good BMI. You know, just every, <laughs> everything everything seems to be working out for for him at this point, which is is funny because you know again there's this whole big history of him you know hiding behind diff- different things. Yeah, and, and you take it all off and you're like you know and you don't fuck up your hair and you're like hey, dude's pretty good looking. You know how how old is he in in this? Is he like hitting forty at this? I don't know. He's a boomer, like the rest of them. Well, he was recording albums in the late 60s, right, with Genesis. So he, you know, mm-hmm. he's yeah. no spring chicken. It's the point. Oh, chicken is in the video. Yeah, yeah I'm fascinated. Born in 1950. So he yeah, yeah, that makes him squarely a, a baby boomer. I, I, I was hoping to introduce the concept of the the Jones, Generation Jones, into our flavor at some point. Um because they would have been the first level consumers of Peter Gabriel, and we would have been the Gen X second level consumers of Peter Gabriel. I wanted to address Sledgehammer in terms of chords and uh, tonality. It's amazing. The song tells you what it is very early on. It starts in like an E-flat minor or E-flat Dorian. It goes into a major key uh, version of E-flat. And then for the choruses and for the epic ending it's back in the minor and that's a trick i don't necessarily like it's a very corny way to compose but if you're gonna do r&b it's legit it's like he's able to do things that i don't like and do them very very well that outro piece also I don't know. I, I, it's not really a necessarily a typical pop music convention. Although I guess you could say the outro kind, you know, that's, that is a typical thing, but it's, it's a different, he's basically taking that, you know, that, um, in the intro part and he's writing it out, writing it out to sea with, I get around that stuff. It's I beautiful. Have it. And, I, and, and yeah. again, from a, from a pop perspective, it's not really typical, like it, it, it's not really a typical. Uh, I, I think at least pop convention. I call it a strut. Um, I, I know there might be a little bit of a shuffle in there, and then in the very end, I'm not sure who's in the right channel with the guitar. It's either Lanois or Rhodes, but there's just a hint of reggae in the clean guitar, just mm-hmm. enough to keep it dancey. Um, but they never commit lock, stock, and barrel to a genre, uh, rhythmically yeah. or, or musically. It's always dancing in that kind of perfect compromise. It's amazing. Shall we move on to Don't Give Up and enjoy ourselves with some more Tony Levin bliss? Yeah. Yeah, let's contrast the the Don't Give Up from Peter Gabriel with the um, final cut from Roger Waters. They, they, they both re- reflect um, the Thatcher years and out-of-work uh, Britons, uh, but there is a gorgeous and stunning way to do it and there's the angry old man way to do it and i think you know this this is another occurrence then of of the ability of peter to connect with either an an audience or a subject matter in a genuine way and and we've talked about this before right peter has a desire to use his platform for you know, the betterment of causes that he feels is important. Roger Waters has the same motivation. However, 
and and I'll I'll paint with very broad strokes here. And if if I'm <laughs> if I'm wrong, I apologize. But it's corporate America speak, right? Don't just point out a problem, bring a solution to the problem. And and that's the difference between the two of them. They're two sides of the same coin. But whereas Roger just wants to piss and moan about everything, <laughs> Peter wants to tell you why this is important and at least offer some indication of the direction you must go in order to fix it. And, and I think Don't Give Up is a beautiful and heart-wrenching expression of that. And, and the way that Peter and, and Kate, you know, play off each other vocally – the way this video is done is so simple and yet so moving. It's it's really just, it, it's admirable the way he is able to, and, and I keep using this word, but the way he's able to be so genuine about this. And, and I think this is an example where, you know, like I said, for as, as much, you know, page space is given to, the, the difficulties Peter has with lyrics, I think these lyrics are absolutely spot on. And and so, Paul, if your theory is correct, by the time Peter, you know, went through the process of birthing these lyrics, he birthed the right ones. Yeah, it it's so... The contrast between, like, you know, dire, down on your luck. I mean, like, the contrast between... Uh, drove the night towards my home, the place that I was born by the lakeside. As daylight broke, I saw the earth, the trees had burned down to the ground. Like, I mean, is it, it can you get lower than that? No. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the next line is don't give up. I mean, the contrast there, not just in the lyric, but the, but the change in vocal with going to Kate Bush, it's, it, it, it is heart wrenching. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. I mean, it. The, it's it, it's hard to even imagine it being as good as it is. It's just it's just really remarkable. And since I too am a grouchy old man, my perception of this particular recording is that Kate Bush delivers the absolutely perfect foil to Peter Gabriel in this, to the point where every other version I've heard, whether it be on any of the live records after this or on the New Blood when he re-recorded this with a different singer, it just doesn't work for me. I I honestly don't really care for other people singing Kate Bush's part of this. I just don't want to hear it. it. It doesn't hit me for whatever reason in the same way. Now that's, that's a, like I said, that's a, that's a, 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 a bratty, grumpy old man thing to say. Well, I want it this way. But... You know, ah. I, I think it speaks to more the power of Kate's performance than anything else. I agree. It's similar to, you know, listening to the movie version of Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. Why would although you I pre- Although I prefer that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I wonder if it has to, you know, has to do with just the the difference of someone like Kate Bush coming into that fold in that experience and 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 being the you know the having the original shot at doing it i mean like well i mean she's amazing let's just call that out right so right yeah and you know but every other version is basically somebody trying to you know do her part and that's what it comes across as that 
I, it's just someone doing her part. I, yeah, and, and I think uh, as we're sitting here talking about it, the the parallel that that springs to mind is the great gig in the sky. Ah, yes. That that recording on the dark side of the moon is uh, it's it's amazing. It's phenomenal, and we've all heard the live myriad live versions or whatever, and and they're good. But are they the original? You know. Yeah, yeah. That I think that's 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 the best, um, best analogy. And, I uh, and, and it, and again, it, it doesn't take away anything from anyone else who's ever sung that song. It's a it's a yeah. fantastic song. It is amazing, but there's something about that re- that original recording that is, you know, timeless or seminal or magical or whatever you want. Yeah, to say. the part on, on this documentary where they like bring up the. Peter's vocal on the middle section. It is like if there was ever a doubt that this is Peter Gabriel in his vocal prime, I mean, he's he puts that vocal up there unaffected, un and it it's it almost sounds exactly like really the the album. I mean, it is just so perfect. And I, I want to say that of, of those awards that you mentioned early on, one of them was a uh, was like a vocal male vocalist of the year or something like that, maybe an Emmy or something. And, um, and I remember hearing that thinking, wow, that's cool that he got that. But I mean, maybe I was sort of thinking like Jeff Tate and other things like that. And like, you know, um, but wow. I mean, the, the album is a vocal powerhouse and this song, goodness, that middle section, he just nails it. Oh, I wanted to uh, support the Beauclairism with documentation. Um, the <laughs> the um, other versions that you referenced uh, go pretty wide and deep. Cover versions of Don't Give Up have been recorded by Bono and Alicia Keys, Pink and John Legend, Willie Nelson and Sinead O'Connor, uh, Marie Brennan and Michael McDonald, Pop sensation Lady Gaga um, covered it with Canadian rockers Midway State so that young people would hear and learn something about Kate Bush. I mean, it's certainly uh, an admirable pursuit, no doubt about it. Who, who was the um, female vocalist? Paula Cole. That, yeah, it was Paula Cole, right? Yeah, on, I mean, that. On the Secret World live tour. Yeah, yeah. She, she was good. Um, and and then you know and then she went on to do her own thing. I, I I really enjoyed her on that tour. But yeah, I mean it was it was her doing Kate Bush. Yeah. <laughs> While I have the Daryl Islea book open, Joe, um, I I hope this is right in your lane. Um, while there is a lot of murky material in Peter's catalog, and so is a breath of fresh air. Uh, they say that in the Kate Bush catalog, her Hounds of Love album was the equivalent the breath of fresh air that she needed to yeah rise above some of the older murkier material for whatever reason and and you know again apologies because i i am not particularly learned at this point in in kate bush as i probably should be and it, it really has to do with with my exposure to it the album that I always remember is is cloud busting for whatever reason. Um, Interesting. I came across that at the University of Delaware radio station, and mm. and and that's just it. It made a connection. I'm not saying it's the best. I'm saying it's the one that I connect with. 
Quick thing with regards to this, I know we we probably want to move on here, but it's interesting, and I hadn't thought of it until just as we were talking about it, (laughs) parallels between Don't Give Up and Stephen Wilson's Pariah. Interesting. You have... Perfect. Yeah, I mean, and I'm thinking in the sense of, you know, again, subject matter not necessarily the same, but you have the the juxtaposition of the, of the, the male and female vocals... And the female vocal in each case providing a, a an uplifting support of the male character who was dealing with whatever at the time. And again, as as I was rhapsodizing about Kate Bush's performance, I was my brain sort of made the the neuron connection to hmm. again that 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 just wonderful scene in that making of video where Paul Stacy comes in after a stellar take and said, yeah, that was pretty good, but you, do you think you can get a little bit more emotion out of that? And they kind of look at him like, but why? And, and when, you, when you hear the final recording, you understand exactly why, right? And, and so that, that's, what, that's what I was thinking of as we were talking yeah. about this. Uh, also, uh, I, it's pretty clear that... Uh, you know, Stephen Wilson said when he was making To the Bone, like, So was one of those records that he, you know, had sort of in the background of his mind. And uh, that that is also track number three. Well, there you on go. To the Bone. There it is. Fascinating. Fascinating parallels. So I guess uh, from there we can move on to what is perhaps the end of, of Mozo with that voice again. This, this song is... Uh, super duper bright you know i mentioned the brightness of of the production and this one is probably the the you know the venus of the so sky night uh it's it's just ridiculously bright it's nothing but symbols and hi-hats and it's it's beautiful and it's wonderful and and the entry synth patches could very well be an insync song like you don't know what it is i almost imagine debbie gibson coming in it's just those those initial chords i don't know how they got there why they're there what what peter was thinking um but if i could just take away that (laughs) intro the song would be perfect well it's the middle part i think they just use that middle part for the intro it seems I don't to, know. to me. Do you, you don't like the tinkly little piano? Is, is, oh, that, what, is that, that what it is? is? Just, I mean, <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, this is this. You're like channeling Tom for this song. I love it, Ken. This is great. Someone has to. <laughs> the, the note I have is there is something very simple minds about this song. Mm, yeah, I'd buy that. Okay. Yeah, to me, this this was the sleeper of the. Uh, I want to say I was riding around in Dan Hunter's green Mustang convertible, maybe. There, I remember listening to Billy Joel in that car, and I remember, um, and I remember listening to that voice again, knowing that it was on the record, knowing that it was not something that was really like my favorite. And then he gets that middle section where he holds that really long note. It gets the the vocal reverb wash. Oh. And the most beautiful thing about that is like most reverb washes just wash away and, and the wash like starts to wash them away and then it closes back around and then he finishes the note. I mean, it's just fucking epic. And, um, and I remember hearing that in, in driving around and, uh, that's impressive. If you can hear that in a convertible, this is the most blatant 
example of Peter singing with himself. For whatever reason, in the chorus, they mixed his harmony so loud. Yeah. Um, it's, it, you know, I, I hear that in people like Ozzy Osbourne or something like that. Like, you, you can only have that sound with the singer singing with themselves. It's not something that uh, Peter does blatantly. I think in the early days, he, he would hide it, maybe deliberately. But, but this, it's just, it, I, maybe it's Lanois. I don't know. Bam, well, in your face. There's two Peters and you're dealing with it. It's an interesting, <laughs> it's, a, it's interesting, Ken, because he doesn't do it very often. And in fact, you know, up until this point, there really is no harmony on the lead vocal. There's backing vocals, but the va- backing vocals are either Kate Bush singing a different part. Well, I thought she's not even really singing a backing vocal. It's, it's a, sec- a second lead. But you don't have you have you don't really have any backing vocals or harmonies on Red Rain. Sledgehammer, it's a full-on backing vocal singing and uh, you know, kick the habit. Um, there's no real harmony on the chorus or anything like that. Um, this is the the first time really on on the album where there's a harmony. And and you're right. It's like you you can't fucking miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's one part where after that big vocal uh, swell, they don't have it. And it sounds completely empty. You're like, wow, that's so weird. Like, uh, And all it's of a sudden, it chorus. comes back in and you're like, wow, there it is. That's oh, really good call. Loud. You're right. You're right. The third chorus does not have... Well, there are de- I think there are like four verses. That, that odd chord in the verse is just such a standout. And it's amazing. Yeah. Each time they come back to it, I'm like, wow, they're doing it again. <laughs> It's a very interesting composition. It did get lots of FM play, surprisingly. Yeah. That is surprising. Like I said, Peter Gabriel has has hits with songs that you wouldn't... It just doesn't make any sense. But that's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rock Radio was playing Mama at the time, and that's pretty bizarre. Now, we are going to keep the original running order, and we are now going to talk about In Your Eyes, as opposed to, to going somewhere else yeah wow you know obviously this song took on an extended life of its own thanks to say anything which is absolutely a a wonderful spectacular movie absolutely you know john cusack movies generally please me lloyd dobler absolutely spectacular character you know have nothing to say this is another example and and if and when i ever get around to to talking about um, or doing my bonus episode on symphonic music in Prague or symphonic interpretations of Prague, I should say. Um, One of the points that I was going to make is that Peter Gabriel, and and I think we actually already made it in some of the earlier episodes, Peter Gabriel has never been shy about um, reworking parts of his song. And in Your Eyes has been a live staple ever since this album came out, but he mm. he changes it up um, just a little bit with regards to the uh, you know the, the the group chorus parts, and you know live that's spectacular and wonderful. But again, grumpy old me, I think there's a certain amount of understated power and beauty in this version that I just. I kind of prefer it. I don't not like the other version. I just prefer this one. And, and like I said, I, I do think it's it, its power is is very understated. And you know, here again, I'm going to make the the same argument that I made previously, 
when you think about a song like, and I'm trying to think of what's one of the songs on Invisible Touch, which came out at the same time, In Too Deep, for instance. Ugh. Okay. Thank you. That's exactly the reaction that I expected to get from you. Those when when Genesis tries to do this, and and generally speaking, I can consume them because, in without a trace of irony, I actually do like saccharin. Sweet and low is my artificial sweetener of choice. I know not many people feel that way, but but when Genesis does this, it's very saccharin. It's too sweet. It's too syrupy. It's it's you know it, there's just a little bit too much of something whereas i think for me there and and i i i i wish i had a different word but there's something just so heartfelt and genuine about the feelings in this song and maybe maybe i project that because of the i don't know what it is but this this song plays a little bit differently than a song like in too deep for me and and to me that makes it really resonate wow so uh, it's amazing to me that that you're even drawing the parallel between the two, even in your in your in your contrast of them, um, because I mean, "In Too Deep" is a pop song. I, I would say undoubtedly, you put that in front of anyone. I I don't really think of "In Your Eyes" as as a as a pop song. I, I, was, um, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking in terms of a pop song. I was thinking more in terms of a love song. Uh, uh, fair, uh, fair enough. But uh, to me, that's the that's the main difference between the two. Like, you know, in too deep. I, I mean, and listen, it's going to sound like I'm bashing on Genesis. In too deep sounds like they said, "Let's write a love song." Some the Phil was writing a love song. Someone was writing a love song. They said, "Let's put it on the record," and you know, to me, Peter is writing. You know, he wanted to have. He was inspired by the ability that of a culture that could that could have a um, a very like intimate and personal physical relationship while still looking at it in a in a spiritual and and like godly way. Yeah, and and he was trying to use that that sort of contrast in in the in the story of the song or in the in the lyrics of the song, and he does it by integrating all of these wonderful different kind of African rhythms and instruments that he's been researching and, and exploring. And it's, it's just, it, it comes together. Like you said, Joe, so genuinely, right. It's just a genuine song that, that brings in all of these different influences. And, and like, I remember, like, I remember, I, I'm pretty sure I saw Peter Gabriel the first time before this was a hit. And I remember seeing say anything, and I was like, "Oh wow!" <laughs> it was a- it was that mo- it was a moment again. I'm like, I'm I'm like one of the few people I think in the theater who really yeah, because this is on side two. People probably haven't gotten yeah. to that 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 song yet. Mm. And and then like boom, like overnight, it's just everywhere. This is a song. I mean, shit. I, I mean, every once in a while, pull this song out at an acoustic gig, and it spans the ages. Like I've. I've sung this song to middle-aged women dancing in front of the bar waiting for their beer, and I've literally sung it 
face to face with like a 23 year old who like oh my god i can't believe you're playing this song this is my favorite song of all time like <laughs> it is an amazing uh, a, a permeating accessible piece of music it's one of those songs that uh, yeah it's it's timeless right because it 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 strikes such a primal chord and again it's it's an extraordinarily it's an extraordinarily positive perspective on the concept, you know, drawing on my my earlier comparison, you know, in too deep is all focused on the maudlin, and mm. th there there are maudlin tones here, but again, everything that Peter does tends to be buoyant and and uplifting and showing you the the path forward, and I I just I I so admire that. Is that why he wanted it to be at the, the last track? Because it is so uplifting and, and so positive? It could very well be. I mean, maybe he recognized this was, you know, the, the Biko of 1986, right? Mm, yeah. There's, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a power to this song. Yeah, Daryl Islaya pulls no punches. It, it's amazing what he says here. The album closed with another of Gabriel's most loved songs written from inside the Gabriel Arquette Great Gabriel Triangle. That is the Gabriel Ar Arquette Gabriel Triangle mm -hmm. and ostensibly a love song for Rosanna. In Your Eyes, originally titled Sagrada Familia and inspired by the cathedral Ooh. in Barcelona. I was going to say, that's, around, that's, the, that's the, uh, the Gaudi Cathedral in Barcelona. I've, I've seen it. I, I, I imagine it's breathtaking. Uh, so this song had been around for a while. Yes, he does refer to Antoni Gaudi. Indeed. And, you know, um, I, I do want to backtrack. We've not recorded our commentary for the Birdie album yet, but there are instances where... Genesis outdoes Phil, and Phil outdoes Genesis. Whether it's the um, failure Peter. of WOMAD and Genesis helping him out with the Nebworth Festival, and, and um, th th there was one movie where Peter contributed a track, I think, with Nile Rodgers, and, and but 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 Phil killed it with the ballad. Um, I think it was throwing it all away. Um, Against so, all odds, maybe? against I'm sorry, against all odds was a major success. That was in fact the movie. Yeah, and and, and while while Phil was was positioning, you know, himself to do that song, Peter was simultaneously pos positioning himself to do his track, and it was just no contest. Phil won that round hands down. So it's interesting how we have this. Rematch, shall yeah. we say? Mm -hmm. Where, where, where? In, 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 you know, your eyes versus in too deep. Oh, okay. Th th this, this one goes to Peter, but it, it's. I am a foil in this podcast for for some of the exclamations from from you two folks, but I just like to point out that most of our artists are earning their keep. Yeah, they're, they're suffering. They're seeing what they did wrong, and they're doing it again, epically better the next time. Now, I don't perform uh against all odds anywhere uh so i don't have anything to compare it to but i am guessing that if i did 23 23 year olds would not get up and start dancing and want to sing it 
with me. I'm just, I'm just, I'm you, just guessing. You, I don't know. You might be surprised. You'll find out. I might out. be. You'll find I might out. be surprised, but I, I don't think against all odds has the timelessness that in your eyes does. That, that's all I'm trying to say, I guess. There's, there's I don't even no know. explaining some of these things. Like I can remember <laughs> it was, it was probably 10 years ago and, and, and I couldn't figure out where they picked it up, you know, but my freaking kids who know nothing about music are significantly younger than I am. No smoke on the water. <laughs> Why? You know, and, and, and I, for whatever reason, I think in your eyes is one of those songs that, that has that sort of a staying power. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just, I think it's utterly spectacular. And from there we move on to the, the equally powerful Mercy Street. And mm. it's interesting, oh. the way this song sort of flows in and out, it, it's, it's, it's seamless, which seems weird because, I mean, Mercy Street is one of those songs which is a little bit off the beaten path, especially when you talk about going from a timeless song of, of the caliber of In Your Eyes to Mercy Street, but... It's not in any way, shape, or form jarring. The, the the flow seems to go pretty well with regards to this. And what is dated about Mercy Street? I didn't say it was dated. It's just it's off the beaten path. It's not okay. It's it's not one of these timeless songs that transcends, you know, generations. And and Paul's never going to find a twenty three year old who has heard Mercy Street much less knows it. Paul, I want you to think about how you would perform Mercy Street in an acoustic setting. I might need a looper. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, I, I, I'm just challenging you at this point. Okay. Ken, you seem, you seem to be very on board with Mercy Street. I, I think I was influenced by the uh, instrumental Herbie Hancock cover and, and, and you know, worked with uh, instrumental musicians to, to do it that way and for me, the track is just forever in my mind. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm sad that it does not live on in the minds of uh, uh, <laughs> Chester County pub goers. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe we here at the Palaver can make it our, our mission to spread the, the word of the joy that is Mercy Street. Yeah, it, it, it's it's absolutely epic, and I, I just absolutely love it. I have to say, this was probably the lo the one that took me the longest to get through. I will say that you know, in my preference for having in your eyes kick off side two, in my at least in my experience, it may have over time diminished all of the other offerings of 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 side two. So perhaps the genius of putting in your eyes at the end is giving more credence and more room to breathe to um some of the other tracks um but but like i think more so for me this one was a little little dark with the you know this is another one ken where there's a lot of vocals there's that low octave going through and and some harmony vocals um go, going through there and as i often mm -hmm. You know, I'm now I'm now going to call this the the Milo effect. Um, when I'm when I'm so familiar with something that I that I feel like I don't need to bother researching anything about it, um, 
you know, and then and then not understand something that is common knowledge to everyone who who knows the band. But I didn't know really for the longest time that this was you know a homage to Anne Sexton, and I in listening to I I honestly don't remember what book it was, but a um, Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote Blink. He wrote uh, The Tipping Point. Um, he wrote Outliers. Listening to one of his books, I became like f- somewhat fascinated by one of Anne Sexton's friends, Sil- Sylvia Path, or uh, Sil- Sylvia Plath. They were they were two poetry po- poets who lived in I think Boston, and they were both sort of obsessed. They were both they both had mental um, mood disorders, and they were both fought depression, and they both ended up committing suicide and at, at at different times and i you know on discovering that suddenly the darkness of this song that had sort of always kept me kept me away or kept me at bay sort of you know op- open open my mind to to diving in a little bit more into this and um I, so that that was that was a really cool experience for me in 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 like all these years later, listen, listening to this, and, and and when you when you realize there's a reason behind the darkness, it gives you motivation to understand that, as opposed mm. to being turned off by it, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and it's 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 a very interesting tracking order to go from from that to hi there. <laughs> how delicious this is part of what we were talking about with the, with the track order and when you take in your eyes out from from there and and you're in this sort of you know qu- more quiet more dark um area of the album and and mercy street is pretty heavy i mean it's powerful and it's moving but it's it, it is heavy whether you know what it's about or not and you know, so putting in your eyes in there and that sort of uplifting sort of keeps you from getting too low, I think, if if that's yeah. appropriate. And, yeah. and, and, you know, again, Peter, you know, is going to counterbalance Mercy Street with, with Big Time. Now, I don't know where else you would put Big Time, but it is a bit of a non sequitur, again, to come from Mercy Street to, hi there, and... <laughs> and, and go right. I just i i I've, I've been literally walking around the house doing that for a couple of days now um, because it yeah. just it just makes me laugh. And I love the fact that he actually does it twice in in the song. But but this is another example, much like Sledgehammer, and it's funny because the two videos are related. The the two songs in some instances are related, but they're they're both just infectious and and they're fun. And there's there's nothing wrong with having fun when you're listening to a record, you know that that should be part of it. And and one of the things that I found interesting as I was you know getting into the lore and you you understand that you know Nile Rodgers was considered for production duties on this. This is a song that Nile Rodgers should have played guitar on. This <laughs> this this song is made for Nile Rodgers to play guitar on. Uh, I, I suppose. After reading about their earlier collaboration 
and then reading some of what what uh, Nile Rogers had to say, I think they were in different zones. Peter liked working from home. Was that Ashcombe? Uh, in, yes, uh, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Yes, the, the name of his place in, in Bath, England. Whereas uh, Niall Rogers, coming off of you know his his work with David Bowie and Power Station and everyone else, um, was doing session work in New York and frankly, partying a hell of a lot. There's a line from him that you know his heart stopped on a couple of occasions, and as long as he was leaving the hospital on two feet. Then the question was, where are we going tonight? So I, I just I just don't necessarily see Nile Rogers at that stage in his career and Peter doing more than just sharing tapes remotely. <laughs> it it could have been an equivalent uh mm. collaboration to Let's Dance. And they set it up to possibly be that way. But I, I think I think Peter needs his space and he works uh, quite differently. Yeah, I guess it's unfortunate. Yeah. Like I said, just when I think of what I what I picture Nia Rogers bringing, you know, this, this it just seems like he would have fit well on here. But you yes. know, I, I love it. And and what a, an interesting thing we we had talked previously about my faulty memory. My faulty memory has essentially merged the video for this and Sledgehammer into a single entity. Ah. Um, <laughs> you know, I I don't know how that is. But uh, you know that's what happened. So did we talk about the uh, the sweet organ sounds or Tony Levin on the bridge? We did not. I think those are both really sweet. Like Tony Levin on that first bridge is just—he's going nuts. Like you said, Joe, you have to have fun, and that's kind of what it sounds like everybody's doing in, in the music. I think the thing that's really fun about this song for me now, and it's actually perfect, Joe, because it, it's accompanying the. This life bites, or uh, what's it called? The future bites. Yeah. Um, with uh, the idea of like the materialism of this, and it's so fitting for the mid '80s, right? I mean, it mid '80s was in the midst of the greed is good culture. Everybody had to have bigger and better, and I get such a big kick out of lines. Like, and I will pray to a big God and I, as I kneel in the big church, like yeah. the interval that he, that he sings that it's just like, it's not just like telling you what it is. It's the absolute confidence that you 100% deserve it and other people don't. And, and I find that listening to that now in the modern day right like in the in the 80s it's like that's projected on someone like peter gabriel right the haves and the haves not have nots right like there were people who did that and then there were other people who just watched it in the modern day it doesn't really matter what your station is in the world everyone fucking lives like that yeah. You know, they've they've got the reels and the the TikToks and their the social media. They're in they they put they portray their entire life like that, uh, even if they're, you know, just a regular uh regular old person. Yeah, and it, it it is interesting. I hadn't really thought of that, but but you're absolutely right in terms uh, and I actually had thought of it in a, a completely different context, which is probably not appropriate to discuss here on the palaver, but I have seen examples of that. And and another line that that sticks with me is 
um, my heaven will be a big heaven and I will walk through the front door. Yes. You know, I just, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's interesting the way that this song is still relevant, even though it's relevant in an entirely different way than it was when it was first written. And, yeah. and you don't often get that. That's interesting. I have a note here, and it's completely unironic. But my note says this song seems bigger than it actually is. It, it seems like there's all this stuff going on, and and there's huge vocals and 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 everything else. But when you actually dispassionately listen to it, it's all pretty controlled. You know, yeah. no, it, with the exception of, of, I mean, I made the, the point of Levin on that first bridge, but even beyond that, it's not like he's flaying constantly. It's, 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 it's all very much stable and it just, there's something about it that, that sounds big. And given, given the lyrics and the title, it's, it's interesting that I wrote that down, like I said, completely unironically. But it, that's that was the impression that I had. It seemed like there's more going on than I think there actually is, and that's you know, yeah. Hmm. It, the the other thing, you know, so all three of these songs on side two have a shit ton of backing vocals. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that is that is the one thing they have, and in contrast to what we had in side one, where. The, the 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 absence of backing vocals made the one time that they showed up like so jarring and and crazy, but I I feel like that that sort of adds to that bigness as well. But I think that's a really like interesting point, Joe, because you're right. When you listen to it, it's not as big as you think it is. Joe, as soon as you mentioned that first bridge and Tony just ripping it up, I I felt bad for not buying the funk fingers that were on display at Prague stock <laughs> when I was there. And I think I'm going to go to expanding hands music online and finally get those funk fingers because what I have now in 2021 that I didn't have in 2019 is an Ernie ball music man bass. Yes, the Stingray. Yes, I do. So, so yes. once, once I get that back from that is Luthier Pete Brown, I will be Luthier. pretty psyched. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and while I'm mentioning uh, local heroes, I should mention uh, when when I when I played the Herbie Hancock version of Mercy Street, I was playing with Dave Rentons at the time of Chester County fame, and and also from our high school. And of course, in keeping with the up and down nature of this record, we now have to go from the boisterous time that was big time to we do what we're told. Um, Yum! It's so sparse, but it is in no way boring at all right it's 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 one of these things that that peter does so well um what was the song oh i'll have to look it up now but there was a song on melt that did something very similar and that song was lead a normal life if i recall correctly ah um, very, very similar in regards, if I recall correctly, there was, you know, it was, it was sort of a long instrumental intro. There was a very small little bit of lyric in there, but there was nothing about that song or this song that, that ever makes me want to skip it, not listen to it or anything else. I'm fully engaged, um, the entire time I'm listening to this. And, and it does, it, 
in in a lot of ways with the with the sounds and I'd be curious if you guys know when you listen to this without paying attention it sounds very much like the classic 1980s Phil Peter um drum machine intro live drummer overdub thing but when I listen to it closely in headphones I'm not convinced that a lot of that is actually a drum machine I, I don't know. You know what Jerry Marotta said? Now, this material was left over from the Melt days and didn't quite make it on security. Okay. Uh, so so, so um, that's, that's a genuine yeah. connection then. Yeah. So, so but, but I, I want to quote Jerry Marotta from this book. And he was very careful to blend the electronics with, with Peter often coming up with his own grooves with Lindrum and whatnot mm. and, and providing that human element. Okay. And it seemed that that he very much knew his role in what he he was bringing, and he was essentially breathing life into Peter's beats. And I feel that it's it's interesting. It's it's kind of like peeling back the onion when you get something like uh, Milgram's here, where you just hear the electronics all alone in their own kind of creepy form w- without the human percussion and you're almost thirsting for the the acoustic instrument to, to enter and do its magic it's it's a beautiful chemistry so are you saying that this is fully electronic or that it is not i'm confused i'm hearing uh uh like like the the, the electronic tom toms sound to me like uh Oh, heaven forbid. Phil's take me home. Right. Yeah, exactly. That sort of a thing. Kind of pop, pop, pop kind of sound. Um, I will peruse the book very quickly. Paul, what is your take on this? <laughs> I, I think I'm kind of kind of like somewhere around where Joe was saying, like, not my not my favorite track, not the song that I go to, but I never don't listen to it. It's funny because, you know, he has the track with uh laurie anderson the, this is the picture right which we'll get to next yeah and and like i always kind of you know laurie anderson's kind of like that performance art sort of you know wacky art kind of stuff and i always kind of feel like this song sounds like that genre hmm. to me yeah i so. can see that hmm. and, and yeah it, it's a sketch piece. And it's interesting, yeah. Ken, when you talk about, you know, Jerry Marotta and and sort of integrating the electronic with the, the human elements, and, and, and you'd think we'd talked enough about Genesis, but I'm just having sort of mental fun at this point as we're, we're thinking about this. The difference when Genesis would do this presumably, was because Phil was doing double duty. And and my mm-hmm. guess is Phil or, or, or Mike or even um, Tony would set up the initial drum loop that presumably they would then use for Phil to play vocalist. And then at some point, you know, he would sort of, and, and they would probably use that and then Phil would, you know, drum in whatever solo section or wherever he wasn't actually singing. And I'm thinking of fading lights specifically as I'm talking yeah. about this. And, and and so, whereas in this particular case, you have 
Jerry Marotta, whose job it is to be the drummer and not do anything else. And so he is probably more able to, you know, keep that blend going throughout the whole thing. Whereas in, in the Genesis case, it was always, it was sort of functional in a way, as well as being artistic. You, you are right. Um, it, it's just a lot of processing on actual drums. Okay. So I was wrong to uh, allude to the drum machine, but this had to have been the, the nature. I can't imagine a drummer doing anything other than playing along with a drum machine, whether we hear that drum machine or not. Right. And, and, and this, could, okay. th- this could be, you know, part of that deck A and B thing that we were talking about, because it, <laughs> it, like I said, if you don't pay attention to it, you would swear up and down. It's, you know, it's, you know, man on the corner part two or whatever. There we go. Nice, nice, nice. I Mm. said, take me home. You said man on the corner, but yes, this is a known thing. But, but, but like I said, when I listen to it closely, I'm like, I'm not so sure. So, (laughs) you know, listeners to Palaver, if you know, um, let (laughs) us know. Whenever Peter was criticized for saying he was doing something commercial in the vein of Phil, he would say, well, people don't credit me, you know, for, you know, Phil coming up with or contributing to the gated drum sound on my project. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so, so, so I was really the, 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 the <laughs> impetus for him becoming, you know, poppy and very, uh, what, what do you call it? Stiff in the drum department. And, I, you know, and, and it's, it's nice because we on the outside, it's so easy to, to, to set this up as some sort of a of a competition and and given the the parallel timelines and and you know we've talked about it even in this episode but by all indications you know while they they don't feel a an overwhelming need maybe to work together constantly by all accounts the the current and former members of Genesis do still seem to be quite friendly with each other and and I <laughs> don't think, that even while, and, and again, this is sort of my projecting from the outside, I don't think that, I, I don't have the impression that Peter actually feels any sort of competition with or animosity towards Phil. I, no. I, I don't get it at all. I, I think his tongue was firmly in his cheek as he was saying that. That's part of what I'm perceiving as Peter's positive outlook on life. This is the picture. Excellent birds. The whole album could have been like this if uh, if Niall moved to England and played by <laughs> Peter's roles. Yeah. You know, and... You know, when when I say that Niall Rogers should have played on, on uh, Big Time, this is not what I'm thinking of. <laughs> 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 you know, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Now, again, it, it's interesting when we talk about closing the record. So it was either... Initially, we do what we're told, or this is the picture, depending on which format you had. Neither one of those obviously has the emotional impact of In Your Eyes. It doesn't have the timeless aspect of In Your Eyes. Um, so I, I can understand why, you know, Peter would maybe want to leave you with a sort of a lasting impression. Again, different subject matter, but like he did with Biko, clearly. Um, yeah. You know, and... and I, I'm interested. the The fact that he was, you know, I would would like to know exactly why he was so fixated 
on having in your eyes in that last spot? Is it, you know, because he thought it was a a, a great song with a, a positive message that he liked? Did he recognize at the time that he had a timeless classic on his hands? And, you know, I, I'm just kind of curious as to why he was so adamant on, on that. But, you know, I'll never know. I have no strong feelings on we do what we're told or this is the picture either way. I enjoy them. I've always enjoyed them. I always listen to them. But it's it's not like I ever am sitting at my desk and suddenly go, I really need to listen to this is the picture. I'm feeling some excellent birds right now. That doesn't happen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'd like to credit this for being a perfect song in three. Oh, well, we do, you know, that does flow your canoe, Ken. We know that. Mm -hmm. One, two, three. Uh, possibly six, but, you know, I, my my motif in the palaver is that I will point out all the different 12 eights and three fours and six eights that I can. And uh, this clearly has a um, momentum of its own. Yeah. It's almost a perpetual motion machine of a song where it's just constantly falling into itself. And uh, that, that, that is the three or the six, depending on how you count it. It's beautiful. And, and it, does, it does have the benefit of, of more beautiful Tony Levin. So mm. <laughs> he does play on this track or does he not? I don't think he does. I think that is my, my buddy uh, Bill Laswell oh, okay. on this track. So, well, okay. Oh, wow. It does have the benefit of excellent bass tone. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? So to me, this is a weird song, and, and and I hate to say it of of all the songs on here. And maybe I didn't really feel this way till I saw the video of, of this song, but it, you know, it's almost a little forced, you know. And there there's a little bit of lore that goes around that. Laurie and Peter couldn't really, you know, agree on how this song should turn out. And so they both have different versions of it. And, you know, you know, but he decided last minute when they did it, I want to put this on the record. So they filmed the video and it just kind of, and, and I didn't know this. I knew that after the fact, right. After I already felt the way I feel about this song. And mm -hmm. when I found that out, it, it was like, okay, now I kind of get it. Because it, it sort of explained it your feelings, right? <laughs> yeah, it feels like you know someone locked Peter Gabriel and Laurie Anderson in a room and said, "Hey, come up with something, guys." Um, but the other thing that sort of I think probably set me in the wrong direction with the song to begin with was like this was on the So Tour. You know, everyone would grab a guitar or something like that, and and line up on stage. And this would be like the introduction of the band song, right? Mm. Nice. And they would, you know, they would hop around and sing this is the picture and play it while he would introduce the band. And and so just the fact that he did it with that, while I think it was extremely creative and a cool way to, to do something like that, a very, very artistic way of presenting the band to an audience. Um it's sort of like pigeonholed this song in, in that category. Like this song is so unimportant. We're going to introduce the band while we're playing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, and I'll say this. I don't think I mind albums that have a drop off at the end. No, you know, some of some albums that I really like the last couple tunes I could do without Joshua tree, for instance, yeah. while 
while I, those last two songs are great, like they're by to me, they pale in comparison to the rest and it fades away. There's a, I know there's, I think Dulcinea, Toad the West Brocket, same thing. Last two songs, just chop them off. Yeah. Don't need them. Don't need them. So, so I don't mind it, I think, when records kind of fade off like this, which is probably why I like In Your Eyes, you know, where it originally was. Right. Because I get tired. I can just pop the cassette out or yeah. fast forward and start over. Or if you get to where you're going and you don't get to listen to the rest of it, you're like, that's right. oh, okay. It's, yeah. it's not like you, you know, if, if In Your Eyes was waiting <laughs> for you, you'd have to get to the parking lot and sit in your car and either fast forward or wait for it to get there because you couldn't just leave that hanging. Exactly. <laughs> it is rather jarring in the streaming service when this ends and In Your Eyes starts. I, I can't imagine that that really satisfied Peter's original vision. Yeah, it's 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 a little unusual, but, you know. So, yeah, I mean, overall, you know, I, I think there's there's a there are several reasons why this album is as big as it is and you know it 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 certainly introduced peter to a, a much broader audience and it introduced you know peter to me honestly um like i said yeah. I, I knew about him but i i, I wasn't driven and it's, it's i'm not going to i'm not going to credit all of this because again i was learning about genesis and peter and and their relationship and 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 you know that sort of kept reinforcing itself for me but but this and invisible touch were at least you know they were so ubiquitous that it 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 got me thinking about it and and going down the rabbit hole and and learning all of the things that we've already talked about so you know and and you know, take it for what it is, and and say what you. I, I really enjoy listening to this record. This is a record that I can put on almost any time of of year, day of the week, time of day, and you know, as long as I've got forty minutes to kill, I'm going to enjoy this record, and and I can find things that will make me smile and happy and groove out, and you know. God help us even sometimes dance around or whatever, um, mm. you know, and, and that's not a bad thing. So I think that pretty much closes out our almost exhaustive uh, exploration of Peter Gabriel. So, you know what? I think the next episode may be our, our track switching. Because if I recall correctly, mm. Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors comes out in 1987. Ah. So... Oh. So now, Ken, we, we are going to start to bear the fruit of your um, innovative idea with how to deal with these two catalogs. And I'm very curious to see how this works out. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that works out. It'll be very, very interesting. And at this point, I think we're going to start doing some ping-ponging back and forth, which may prove to be extraordinarily captivating. Anyway, we'll talk about something next week, and we'll have a damn good time doing it, and we'll talk for much longer than we really, really need to. Yes, indeed. So I will catch you gentlemen next week, and as always, thank you for, uh, for coming along for the ride. It was a great one, and um, you know maybe we'll get some comments from Tom that we can read into the record next time. So thanks, guys. Put a pin in it.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at Progpala on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on a host of streaming services, um, most notably Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, yes, finally Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.